Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in French Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest in this episode is Chris Millington, the author of A History of Fascism in France from the First World War to the National Front. And the book was published by Bloomsbury in 2019. Hi there, Chris. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much for joining me. So, Chris, could you get us started by telling our listeners a little bit about how you got interested in working on France originally? Uh, yes, I've thought a lot about this actually over the past few years because I um, began learning a new language a couple of years ago and uh, it made me realise that I'd got interested in French history through through first learning the French language. I'd always thought my interest in history had come first, mm. um, but then I realised that although I did have a great high school history teacher and my mum and dad used to uh, take me and my brother to uh, historical sites on holiday like castles and ruins and all that sort of stuff. So perhaps I absorbed something of an interest in history through that. But um, it was actually only in the the final year of university that I got to study French history. Um, And so I think it, it, it was learning the French language in high school that that seemed to then later make the history of France uh, an obvious choice, I suppose. And the subject of this book, I mean, I know you write on a number of related topics and issues as well as other things. Why a history of fascism in France? Yes, yeah, so I do have research interests in political extremism and, and violence. And uh, I first became interested in this topic as a student at, at Liverpool University. I remember it quite well. It was in my final year and I chose to answer an essay question on um, the, the matter of fascism in interwar France. Did, did it exist? I think I think was the question. Um, and that, that meant that I read the work of uh, historians like Kevin Passmore, who then was my PhD supervisor at Cardiff University. Um, because when I was thinking about doing a PhD, I thought, well, what did I really find interesting in my undergraduate studies? And I liked Kevin's work uh, a lot. The strange thing about my research interests is that, and it, particularly my research interest in fascism, I don't feel like it defines me as a historian because people often describe me at seminars and conferences as a historian of fascism or a historian of the extreme right. And when they do that, I think to myself, no, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I, I think I'm a historian of France who's interested in these things in France. It just, I suppose maybe it, it says a lot about uh, how we feel uh, or, or what we think about the way others perceive us or what what others think of our our work but it always sounds very jarring to be described as a historian of fascism which is quite silly I suppose because we're talking about a book I've written (laughs) called A History of Fascism (laughs) Uh, and then the book itself I think came from my desire to to write an update really uh, because it's it's a work of synthesis uh, Mm -hmm. which also draws on my research that I'd conducted in the, in the 10 years be- before I wrote the book. So um, I owe a huge debt to the historians and political scientists and sociologists and all these scholars, in uh, Anglophone scholars and Francophone scholars who've gone before me. Um, yeah. But I wanted to write an update of the historiography with perhaps my own take or my own approach and bringing in some of my own research. And uh, I, I didn't think that this had really been done since, uh, not in English, since Robert Soucy's uh, first wave and second wave books in the 1980s and 1990s. And uh, Pierre Milzer uh, had written a book uh, in, in the late 1980s on fascism in France. So so I felt like with all the research that had been conducted and published since those books, I felt like now was the right time to, to bring out a new synthesis on the subject. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and I really appreciated the opportunity to both revisit that enormous body of work through your work and then to read your take on it uh, through Mm. the the multiple chapters in the book. So let's really just sort of dive into that aspect of the book, Chris, the relationship between this project and the existing literature and these historiographic debates, you know, regarding the the possibility, the nature, the development of fascism in France, including mm. this profound set of questions about whether it even makes sense to say fascism in France. Yes. That's a really ambitious thing to try to even synthesize, let alone 
add to in some way? Um, well, I think uh, anyone who is familiar with the topic uh, would know that the, there is broadly these two sides to the question of fascism in, in, in interwar France. Um, firstly, that it, it, fascism was very weak in interwar France. It was uh, uh, borrowed from abroad. It was a pale imitation of movements in Italy uh, and, and less so Germany. Um, and uh, French fascists were not really serious uh, about they, what they wanted to do, or if they were serious, they appealed to so few people in France that they're hardly worth uh, talking about. Um, and that, that point of view came around, uh, or first emerged in the historiography in the, the 1950s with René Raymond's uh, book uh, on the right in France, um, to which he didn't devote much attention to fascism, um, and even more surprisingly, he didn't devote much attention to Vichy uh, at that mm. time. Since that, since he wrote that book, this school of thought developed that well, f- f- uh, France was immune to fascism. Now, that's not a word that these historians use; it's actually a word that their opponents use. But it generally um, encapsulates their point of view that the French were uh, so attached to democracy through hundreds of years of engagement uh, with democratic po- political. Uh, competition and with just growing up and developing in a democratic politi- political culture that there was no room for these sorts of extremist ideologies. So mm-hmm. that's the kind of the one side of the de- debate. And then the other side challenges that by arguing, well, no, fascism was very strong in France. Fascism, um, according to uh, Zave Sternhell, came from France. So the, the, the purest expression of fascist ideology um, in its earliest stages in the late 19th century w- was in France. Um, so it kind of turned this debate on its head. And Sternhell, uh, writing in the 1980s, drew this furious reaction from the uh, the Raymondians, we, we might call them, mm. um, who, who argued, well, no, th- this is completely wrong. They didn't just, just disagree with his arguments. They claimed that Sternhell didn't understand the sources or he, he'd picked certain sources uh, over others to create this false image. And really since then, there's been this toing and froing, uh, mm-hmm. and it's still, it's still going on. So the most recent book on the topic uh, was uh, an editor collection by Ber- uh, Serge Berstein and uh, Michel Vinoc uh, a couple of years ago, which again, was just a, a takedown of the Sternhell side of things, including my own work. <laughs> <laughs> the thing I wanted to do in this book was sort of move on. It's all very interesting, trying to define fascism and trying to decide who was fascist and who wasn't fascist. But there are other more interesting things to do. And I think we should just leave this, what's really become name-calling uh, behind and... Uh, maybe there is another way between these schools uh, of thought. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting, Chris, because when I was thinking about the questions I would want to ask you and what we might speak about, I kept thinking and formulating questions and I was like, oh no, that that's just going to suck us right back into the vortex. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, um, but I do, I want to keep, I want to stay here for a, another couple of moments just to say, you know, another thing I want to ask you about is the sort of chronological scope of the book, you know, the decision to really begin in the interwar years Mm. and take us, take your readers right up to the early 21st century and whether or not that in and of itself constitutes some kind of decision with respect to those camps, maybe not a, I'm choosing this or that, but that how you're understanding or defining fascism, even though you're kind of not doing that in the book in a certain way, not, not you know, providing readers with it, this is what fascism is and this is what will be in every single one of these chapters. I don't think the book is trying to do that. And that seems to be one of the productive, you know, things about it. Sure. But that um, in beginning, let's say, not in the late 19th century as Schnarnel does or as others might sort of harken back to that period, that you're making some kind of statement about about the nature of something called French fascism is that is that true? Do you think or uh, yes? Yeah, I think as historians we all have to set the parameters of our study, and by in setting those parameters, we therefore define uh, what we what we're looking at, whether consciously or unconsciously. 
the the reason I didn't go back to the the late nineteenth century is because what I wanted to do was um, rather than look at or rather than formulate my own definition of fascism, which I don't in the book, um, which uh, no doubt will draw some criticism from from historians of fascism that that I don't define the object of of my study. What I wanted to do was look at the way fascism was understood by contemporaries. So how was it used as a political label? What did people think fascism was? Who did people think the fascists were? And why did they say that someone was fascist and perhaps say that they weren't fascist or what lay behind their understandings of fascism? And therefore I didn't go back to the early 19th century because... um, because no one was calling themselves fascist at that time <laughs> mm-hmm. and no one was saying that this is fascism. Um, it's only, uh, and I suppose maybe it's an implicit criticism of Sternhell that, to go back and say that these people were proto-fascists in the uh, late 19th century, as he does. Maybe um, I'm criticising him uh, a little bit because... Uh, for me, the meaning of fascism is all in the discourse of it. Um, mm. The uh, the the historian uh, Gilbert Allardyce wrote in the late 1970s that fascism it doesn't exist beyond who we say is a fascist, or it doesn't exist beyond the discourse that constructs the term of it. Um, so, um, I, I suppose the point I wanted to make was that before the label fascism existed, there was no fascism. Yeah, I wondered about given your you kind of approach to all of this. I wondered, you know, what did it mean to you? And maybe you've answered it by just saying what you said. But if there's more to say about it, I'll give you a chance to do that <laughs> or say no to me. Um, that you know, making the choice to call this a history of fascism in France, what would it mean to have called it instead, or why wouldn't you have called it instead a history of the extreme right in France? Yes, that's a really good question, and it's one that um, my I, I co-authored a book uh, with Brian Jenkins a few years ago, and after he read my book on fascism, he he suggested I should have called it kind of a history of fascism in air quotes. <laughs> um, I'm sure your publisher would have loved that. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, I I think uh, rather than calling it the extreme right, what I suppose I wanted to. Uh, look at the movements and leagues and parties that are typically thought of as fascist uh, in the historiography and were typically considered fascist at the time Mm. and look more closely at how they understood what fascism was. And again, in the same way that my choice of chronology is an implicit definition of fascism or what I think fascism is or the approach I should take, I must admit that the movements I pick must also be part of this unconscious uh, definition mm. of what fascism is or who fascism or, or who the fascists were. I do say in the, the in actually the first paragraph of the book that the the movements covered borrowed bits of fascism, uh, adapted parts of it, and some readers might consider the movements to be fascist. But I was really not interested in throwing out there another definition of fascism only to be taken down by uh, uh, numerous other historians who define fascism differently. I want to follow up on that a little bit, Chris, you know, who the book is addressed to. So there's the, you know, historiographic address and, um, you know, the intellectual questions that you're engaging in the book, but then there's also, yeah, your readership and it, I'm always reluctant to say, oh, I think this would be a great book to give to students because I'm always worried that somebody's going to think I'm saying it's it's too easy or simple or something. Or, you know, when somebody says this is a great book for undergraduates, I mean, I mean that genuinely as a, as a compliment. And one of the things yeah. I really enjoyed about the book for me as someone who isn't uh, a specialist in this field, but also for a potential student that I would, you know, assign or recommend this book to, that you do combine that synthesis and kind of, you know, recapitulating some of the, giving us an overview of what's been happening in these debates and this history while also providing some very concrete, very specific examples from, you know, uh, fascist movements and events and, you know, these moments. So it's not just a, it's not a textbook. And I, and I wonder about that decision to, to write a book like that and about, you know, how as a writer who's done a lot of detailed, intricate, you know, research and conversing and, 
debating perhaps with people all very well informed, like how you negotiated that, that tension between addressing a broad audience, writing something that would be accessible to students, and then also yeah. bringing in, you know, your own expertise. Yeah, I, I think there's several reasons behind why I, I chose to do it that way. Uh, there are the intellectual reasons, but there are also practical reasons as well. So I, if I take the practical reasons first, I wrote the book uh, at a time when I had a newborn baby and trips to France were not possible mm. uh, at that time. So I decided that I would write this synthesis, which would... I. I Essentially, I would be able to do it without going to France because uh, I had access to the the uh, secondary literature, but I also had the the work that I'd done on my project on veterans on uh, the sixth of February nineteen thirty four and on political violence as well to to add in to this secondary literature. So, as much as I'd like to say that oh, I had this high minded intellectual ideal and that was all that was behind it, the practical things. That dictates what as much what we research as anything I, I believe, mm-hmm. but but probably particularly in the time of the pandemic. <laughs> sure. Um, but but the the reason I wanted to pitch it in this way was to offer students uh, a survey of of the of fascism of the debate, but with the necessary detail so that they would gain a clear understanding of what these movements were, what they wanted, who these people were. It is a survey. It's not not. It doesn't go into as much detail as a historical monograph, based on uh, completely based on primary research. But I think there is enough primary research in there to for even people who are familiar with the topic to be interested in, in reading it, particularly on things like gender and its relationship with fascism and uh, and violence too, mm-hmm. uh, and the, and the way violence was deployed at this time. I think my audience also was aimed at the the community of historians who are interested in in these this field to perhaps not not just french fascism but fa- the history of fascism in general in that i wanted to put forward the the approach that we don't necessarily have to define fascism there may be this third way between these two uh, competing camps i had a, a a very small hope that it might be read in france by the See, I was going to say the other side of the debate, so that that immediately puts me <laughs> on one side. But the uh, that's really that, what um, this interview is about, Chris. It's about <laughs> getting <yes>. you to <laughs> to confess. That's good. Um, so uh, I, I hoped it might be read by some French historians who would take very much the opposite approach uh, to me. Uh, I do know it has been. It was read by uh, Antoine Perrault because he emailed me about it, <laughs> um, but. Uh, other than that, I, I'm not sure if the the major historians in the field over there, like like Serge Bernstein, I'm not sure if they read English, and uh, even if even if they do, they might not give the work of a so-called Anglo-Saxon historian the time of day. I just want to come back to this question of sources. Well, before I say that, Chris, I just want to say I want to thank you for raising the practical issue of having a newborn baby. And yes, yeah. it's not something we always talk about, right? In a in a way that isn't like hugely apologetic or whatever. And so I think it's I think it's actually very important that you shared that and, you know, that you're a man who shared that is important too. So I appreciate that. It, yeah. Like I say, it was very, very much dictated by by practical reasons. Because on, on the one hand, why why would I go away and leave a newborn baby anyway I wanted to be uh, with with her uh, but also why why would I leave my wife on her own while I go and have a nice time in Paris <laughs> researching uh, so uh, I have been back to France to do research uh, in the last couple of years but I have another new baby so I don't really know when when I'll be back again right well you're still managing to churn out these books you <laughs> You're, so that's well, pretty impressive, I think. Um, even if you're staying put a little bit, um, so that I think if you can employ research assistants, that's the way to go. <laughs> I think. Uh, but I, yeah, I want to come back to the question of the sources that you're using, uh, apart from this, you know, massive secondary literature and and set of debates, things that you're drawing on from your own previous and other research. You know, what what is the stuff that's in the book and that readers will find? apart from what you're synthesizing and pulling together from the existing 
secondary literature? What kinds of things can can a reader expect to to encounter? Um, well, it's essentially uh, documents uh, produced by these movements themselves. So uh, movements like the Quadifa, um and uh, the the other uh, more minor leagues uh, from the period, and also documents produced by the police and the government on uh, these fascist groups that, that, or, or so called fascist groups on things like their tactics, their membership, the police reports of violence between these fascists and uh, and anti-fascists and police reports on the activities of the groups. Um, and I use the, the contemporary press a lot too, because uh, as I say, much of what I'm interested in is the way things are framed and the way uh, discourse is interpreted and the, the meanings that are constructed around things like fascism. And uh, in my previous work on political violence, I was very interested in, well, what did people think violence was and why was it okay to commit violence in circum- certain circumstances, so I have these what we might call not not I don't want to say pragmatic sources like produced by the government, uh, because of course they put their own spin on things too. But I, I very much like using the contemporary press as well, and also uh, contemporary non-fiction books and and novels as well, which feature these groups too, uh, because I, I'm. What I'm interested in, as I've said, is what what were the meanings people read into this at the time? Not necessarily what was this objectively? What was this in an abstract sense? What did people think it was at the time? And how did they think it operated? And what what was its purpose? I know I asked you already, Chris, about, you know, when you begin the book and why not the late 19th century? And and so we've dealt with that. But I I guess I want to ask you a question that, that deals with the chronological issue it comes at it from a different way, maybe, which has to do with more like the sort of teleological thing about the way that the Second World War and Vichy work as a kind of anchor, not just in your book, but like in how you, whether whether you want to or not, but also whether you can, you know, get away from it. Um, and, I, mm. and I wonder about that, you know, as someone who works on on that period as well, like the period of the Second World War, but as someone who works on these questions, what kind of challenge that is? Like, do you feel like when you're structuring a book or when you're thinking through a project, does it feel like all roads are sort of explanatory roads to Vichy and away from Vichy? Or what's the role of it? it you know, how does it lurk and determine and constrain you as a researcher and a writer when you're dealing with something like the history of fascism in France? Yeah, that's a great point to raise, actually. Um, I think that the because the uh, the traditional historiography of Vichy was so utterly deconstructed and destroyed in in the 1970s by, by Robert Paxton the uh, in that Vichy was shown to be this this French product that had uh, long-term French roots uh, and origins I usually assume that the the period of the interwar years that that work hasn't really been accomplished in the same way uh, that Paxton did for the Vichy years so there is still this debate about well, was fascism actually strong in France? Uh, what are the are there any French roots to fascism? That question doesn't seem to have been settled, and so I suppose in looking at fascism in the interwar years, it does tend to lead you to try and look for this incremental shift towards the right and the extreme right, propelled by these groups, but an incremental shift of the whole of society and politics towards Vichy. And uh, I think in that way, you're correct, that Vichy does tend to influence, uh, whether we want it to or not, the the direction of research into the into interwar politics, mm. and especially interwar fascism, because, you know, you know, we're trying to prove, or we're trying to argue that fascism was... A significant force and therefore it, it only stands to reason then that mm-hmm. that feeds into the Vichy regime. There is another point further in the future uh, beyond Vichy uh, that that the, the historians who uh, are on the immunity thesis side tend to reference and that's the Fifth Republic. Mm-hmm. So they tend to argue that these movements in the interwar years they uh, and particularly uh, Lieutenant Colonel de la Roque's Croix de Feu and uh, Parti Social Francais, that they say that these movements are the harbingers of the Fifth Republic. They preempt Gaulism. Um, they can't be fascist because they they just make objective 
critiques of the Third Republic, which everyone agreed with anyway. And this was born out in the Fifth Republic when the French finally got it right and had this uh, this regime dominated by a strong executive uh, and a strong person. So Vichy is certainly there for the historians who are arguing that fascism was strong, but the Fifth Republic is there for those arguing that we shouldn't see these groups as fascists, we should see them as just the precursors to modern conservative movements. That's really interesting. Let's talk a little bit, Chris, about the the people and the movements that the book deals with. Uh, you know, you've got these seven chapters and a number of them, you know, focused on different leagues and groups and uh, personalities, leaders, members. Uh, the conflicts between them. And, and we don't have time to get into all of them, but I wonder if by asking you about the diversity of the movements in uh, the 20s and 30s in that period um, and some of the conflicts between them, we could get at some of the, I don't know, more of the detail of who are the big personalities, who are the most, what are the most important movements you would want a reader to kind of come away with an understanding uh, about. Yes, yeah, you're right to say that there is there's great diversity. So there there's not just one fascist movement. It generally comes down to different uh, political personalities and rivalries, which, but also different attitudes to fascism, which dictates why these movements are are separate and uh, and also because the leaders have their own political ambitions. So they don't want to they want to be the the leading force on the extreme right. They don't want to be in an alliance. With, with with anyone else who they consider to be competition uh, or rivals. Of course, we can't escape uh, the man I've already mentioned, Lieutenant Colonel uh, François de la Roque, uh, who uh, is seen as, or his movement is considered to be, the, or was once considered to be the key to the debate on fascism. So uh, this, this league, which is founded in the late 1920s, the Quadifer, which he then comes to... to to lead in the early 30s and really turns it into a paramilitary formation that then grows exponentially after 1934 to half a million members, which puts it, 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 it makes it bigger than the Italian fascist party before the March on Rome and bigger than the Nazi party before January 1933 when Hitler's invited into power. And it only grows bigger and bigger after that. So it, it reaches perhaps two million members by 1940, when, when it's become a bona fide political party. Um, and so it's simply because of its size that this is seen as the key to the debate. If it was fascist, then fascism was massive in France. If it wasn't, then uh, the French had chosen a conservative movement that rejected fascism. The The problem with the Quad de Feu, or in the historiography, is firstly the definition of fascism. And I find this really interesting and it does make me laugh uh, for, for a particular reason because so Rene Raymond describes the Quad of Feu as conservative and that he defines fascism as uh, based on an appeal to the people and popular sovereignty. It's more towards the left. So the Quad of Feu was too conservative to be fascist. Uh, Robert Soucy defines fascism as an extreme form of conservatism. And so Soucy and Raymond both agree that the Quad of Feu was conservative. But Susie says it was fascist because it was conservative and Raymond says, no, it wasn't <laughs> because it was conservative. That just illustrates the problems with, with definition. But there's a problem for the historian when we're looking at what Laroque himself said. He was quite ambiguous about his uh, his attitude to the Republic. So uh, he would profess his loyalty to the Third Republic, but it would often be qualified with him saying that he he was loyal to the the, the existing Republic or the, the existing constitution, which sort of left room for the fact that he might want to revise the constitution himself. And he certainly did put forward plans that would have severely constrained democracy uh, in France. And if we think of this, as some historians do, as a precursor to the Fifth Republic, where you have this strong man as a leader with a, a small team of ministers beneath him. Um, that's all very well and good, but Larocque also said that he would crush the left and mm. uh, get rid of the Socialist Party and the Communist Party. Well, that didn't happen under the Fifth Republic. So, so there's this problem with this teleological argument. What he said about fascism 
was also quite ambiguous. He liked parts of Mussolini's uh, fascism. He rejected Hitler's Nazism because it was German. He uh, felt closest to Salazar in Portugal. Mm. But all of these movements borrowed things off each other and adapted these things. But everyone at the time believed that uh, nations had particular mentalities and fascism was not right for France because fascism was Italian. Um, France and Portugal could be allies because they shared a Latin mentality. Mm. And also, if you were allies with a Latin country like Portugal, that meant you had nothing to do with a fascist country like Italy Mm. or Germany. So that just, again, goes to show what people at the time understood fascism to be and how fascism could stop at the border, really. How important is it to you in the book to pay attention to, you know, what movements call themselves. So there's this approach of, you know, who's being called fascist? How does that discourse mm. work? But but how important is the refusal of characterizations of fascism or fascist ideology, like to take a movement's word about itself? So often people sort of are running away from that characterization, yes. whether yeah. or not, if if we took the term fascist away from everyone who ran away from it, we'd be missing a bunch of fascists. Um, <laughs> what do you do with that, I guess? Yeah, the the majority of movements were reluctant to say that they were fascists because they were, they were themselves ultra-nationalists and fascism at the time was considered to be a foreign ideology. Mm. So on the one hand, they don't want to be accused of being carbon copies of uh, a, a foreign movement and on the other hand that they don't think that fascism is suited to France because of this belief in mentality so people like La Roque, uh will express admiration for Mussolini and the things he's done in Italy particularly removing the threat from the left but then this is qualified with him saying that of, of course this this won't work here because we are French and we will uh, we need to apply thoroughly French methods. Mm. Um, now, so, some movements did claim the fascist label, such as the FESO in the 1920s, mm-hmm. a violent paramilitary league led by a man called Georges Valois. He he said he was a fascist and he looked admiringly to Italy, but he liked the revolutionary side of fascism in Italy, whereas his rival movement, the Action Française, a movement from which he had come, the Action Française also admired fascism in Italy, but they admired the conservative side of it, the side that was allied with the, the church uh, uh, and the king. And the Fezzo and the Action Française come into conflict with each other because of this difference in understanding of what fascism was mm-hmm. uh, at the time. Fascism was thrown about as an insult. And so when the movements refuse the label fascism, it's not... It, the, the thing for me that's most interesting is, well, why did they refuse it? On what grounds did they refuse it? And what does that tell us about what they thought Mm -hmm. uh, fascism was? So, for example, La Roque likes, as I said, it looks very admiringly at Salazar in Portugal because Salazar has said he rejects totalitarianism. But what he means by that is that Salazar uh, rejects this like deification of the state at the expense of the Catholic Church, which La Roque is also in favour of it. it. He promotes hardline Catholic values. So Laroque likes Salazar's rejection of fascism, but Salazar has a very particular reason why he rejects fascism as well. Mm. It's very complex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I just want to come back to to something that you know has come up before in our conversation. The whole book is what, like what role the left plays in the book, and I don't know if this brings us back to Sternhell or not. Uh, I guess it could that the left is there as a kind of opposing force, defining force. And then, of course, if we go the Schoenhau route, left and right as a kind of binary doesn't quite hold up when we're thinking about certain types of politics and ideology. So how, how are you working with that in the book? The What role does the left play in the book for the movements and for you as you're well, in terms of what the what fascism might be, I think uh, I, I do favour, and of course I would favour my <laughs> former PhD supervisor's definition of fascism, um, in that he uh, wrote that fascism has a revolutionary side, so it has this appeal to the people, 
uh, and uh, it wants to mobilise the people through paramilitarism in a way that conservatives do not appeal to the masses, uh, but also has, uh, sorry, and this revolutionary side opposes traditional conservatism, but it also has a reactionary side as well, um, which opposes the left. Uh, and things like social revolution. The reason I like that definition is because it doesn't require you to explain away uh, aspects of fascism or aspects of what fascists said by uh, just saying, oh, well, they were lying about this. Or if fascists said that they wanted to base their new government on the people, it was just a lie. They're they're really conservative. So I think there is a a left-wing component of fascism uh, which I think is important in what when we're thinking about what fascism is. And people at the time were aware of it. So as I said, Valois liked the revolutionary side of fascism. So we should be aware that there are these broadly two sides to fascism, and but there is conflict between these two elements to fascism, not just in France, but everywhere. So fascists in Italy argued about what it was too. As for the, the movements of the left, of course, they're very important because they help to structure what people at the time thought fascism was. So they help using the label fascist for particular movements. And the way that they explain what fascism is, there's a, a violent political movement that seeks to overthrow the republic violently. That informs the way people uh, understand fascism, the way contemporaries understood it. Um, and it's why in in the uh, mid-1930s, the Popular Front bans these paramilitary leagues because it sees them as a threat to the Republic. Now, of course, we, we know that fascists didn't really seize power through violence or, or not, not kind of in a, a spectacular outburst of violence on, on a single day. That, for me, is important because it means that the Popular Front, while it it thinks it's defeated fascism in 1936 by banning the leagues. It's after 1936 that these movements like the Parti Social Francais grow to their biggest extent because they are forced to become political parties engaged in the political process uh, and preparing to enter elections, which is really how Hitler and Mussolini did it with this combination of electoral politics and violence. So I'm not saying that the Popular Front facilitated the success of this extreme right in the late 1930s, but what I do think it did was it underestimated or or it, it miscalculated what the success of foreign fascism was based on. Chris, how are you dealing in the book with I want to say something really simplistic, like the tension between ideas and action. <laughs> um, that yeah. is to say, you know, the the positions of these movements and leagues, their writings, you know, the rhetoric, and then events, you know, and sort of in the streets and other types of activities. And I'm thinking especially of the Stavisky episode, but yeah, that relationship between ideology, principles, political beliefs, and you know, what actually happens and what these leaks participate in, in terms of violent, uh, violent activity uh, during the interwar years. How do you, how do you work through that uh, in the book? I think the, the relationship between ideas and actual action, what we might say on the ground is that ideas, I think, condition people's worldview. So they uh, condition the, the expectations of these extreme right-wing activists uh, in terms of what, action uh, is permissible for them to take, so uh, certain, perhaps certain types of violence, but they also condition what to expect from the enemy as well. Mm. So they uh, might arrive, uh, or they might have arrived uh, in central Paris on the 6th of February, uh, understanding that, well, the, the police are going to act in this certain way because they are the vanguard of this rotten republic which is what the leagues were saying on the 6th of February. And therefore that might have an influence on the sorts of ways that they interpret police action on the ground and in the heat of the moment, Mm. and also the way they react uh, themselves. On the other hand, a lot of this representation is retrospective. So my work on political violence showed that fights and violence broke out um, for many, many different reasons. And often it wasn't one single reason that caused these fights to break out. However, retrospectively, these frameworks of representations and interpretations were constructed to advance political agendas after violence. I think you have these two, the ideas before the violence and the uh, or action and ideas after uh, the action, which uh, contribute to national political debates and national 
political agendas. Um, but also on the ground during fighting, it can take on a life of its own. So one of my arguments I make about the 6th of February 1934, this riot in central Paris, and I mentioned that I've worked on this with Brian Jenkins, is that we can look at what the League said before the riot, saying that they wanted to clean out the, the Republic or they wanted to remove the Prime Minister. But during the heat of the moment, the violence takes on a dynamic of its own, what Michel Dobry calls uh, the exchange of blows, um, which kind of ups the ante and ups the stakes and things can spiral out of control no matter what the League said beforehand. That can be used as uh, a method of interpreting perhaps the interplay between left and right in the 30s uh, more generally. You can start with what the left and right said about each other and what they want, what they had planned for the Republic. But there is this interaction which spirals further and further out of control and leads to more and more violence and polarisation, um, which uh, is a process that has its own dynamic, sometimes independent of what people actually intended. I want to come back to something you brought up a bit earlier about one of the things that you see as a contribution of, well, and I, I do too, having read the book, see as a contribution of the book, uh, which is the way that the book engages the the role of of gender in the history of fascism in France. So could you talk a little bit about how it's something that comes up in the book and, you know, why this was important to you and, and how how gender figures, you know, whether it's in terms of the representation of women, issues of masculinity, sexuality as well, like how that plays a role in this history. Yes, um, I'll take representations of women first and, and women mm-hmm. in the movements uh, in general. It would be easy to begin with masculinity, but yeah, <laughs> um, women are absolutely central to uh, the Quad and the Parti Social Francais in the 1930s. Um, and I, I can take no credit for, for the work on what, which that is based in my book. It's um, work by historians like Caroline Campbell, who's done a brilliant work on gender and the, the Quad and the PSF. What these historians have said is that um, La Roque uh, moved away from paramilitarism um, from the mid-1930s, partly because of the bad press that violence uh, brought to the movement. I, I think that's quite an interesting point, because we, we might think of fascists as committing violence and, and thinking, well, who cares what, what the press say afterwards? Who cares what the government does? But it was a main concern for them, as it was for Hitler. But there's this move away from paramilitarism and an emphasis on this hyper-masculinized ideal of the war veteran as the saviour of France and a move to social work and the idea that you can remake France and reconstruct France from the bottom up through uh, social and cultural initiatives, things like charity uh, bazaars, charity fairs, soup kitchens, holiday camps for for working class children. Um, And so women are at the forefront of this. On the one hand, because it's seen to suit their natural abilities uh, as caregivers. Uh, but on the other hand, it's because they can go places where male activists can't go. So they can go to hand out clothes or or food to, in working class suburbs, whereas male activists would most likely be beaten out of these suburbs by anti-fascists. Um, and so what I uh, think that the, uh, the Quadifer and the PSF are doing here um, it's not that they're becoming a charitable organisation. They are spreading propaganda at the same time um, as uh, as helping the needy. Uh, so there is this very specific move towards social work, um, which attracts hundreds of thousands of women into the Quadifer and the PSF. Uh, and it has a, a, a female membership like hardly any other political movement at the time. Um, and Laroque himself sees these women as key to transforming France, um, key to his project to remake France, but to remake it in a Catholic, ethnically homogenous way. Um, and it's women that will help him do this. So that the, there's this tension between understanding women as on the outside of politics in uh, into war France because they they don't have the vote, they're not, they're not seen 
as prominently as men in the public space. But there, there is room for manoeuvre within movements like this. And men and male leaders like Larocque do consider them to be very important mm. to their projects to, to, well, to, to remake the republic and remake the nation. So, Chris, the, the period that the book spans is um, such an important one. I mean, when is there not an important period um, with respect to colonialism, empire, race, these questions uh, in French history? But how does the book deal with the colonial context, uh, with empires that figures in the rhetoric and politics of the groups who are based in metropolitan France, so-called, but then also, you know, the iterations of these and other groups in, well, places like Algeria, primarily I'm thinking of, but but elsewhere too, if that's uh, relevant and comes up in this in this history. Yeah, I think it, the empire and colonialism, it's, the, it's one of the things that if I could write the book again, I would do it in a different way in mm. terms of empire and colonialism. And it's partly because of things I've been thinking about recently, uh, to do with fascism and colonialism. Uh, what I'll do is I, uh, I'll explain what the book does do and then I'll explain what it doesn't do. <laughs> so yeah. uh, so it does look at uh, these uh, sections of these movements in uh, places like, well, specifically North Africa. Um, and uh, I, I used a lot of the work by Samuel Kalman uh, in this respect, who wrote a book, French Colonial Fascism, um, who uh, found that the, the most of the extreme right-wing leagues of the interwar years were not very successful in uh, North Africa, partly because they just uh, ignored North African uh, concerns, the concerns of the uh, North African population, but also the European population in North Africa in favour of metropolitan issues. But uh, the, the Quadifa uh, and the PSF did appeal to uh, a, a kind of racist settler community with its promise to kind of make France a great nation again. Um, but but it was it was quite specific and a bit particular in these areas because there was uh, this French colonial fascism which wanted to establish a French uh, extreme right-wing dictatorship in uh, North Africa, perhaps separate to the Republic. And these people drew on um, anti-Semitism, um, uh, and later in the 1930s, uh, opposition to uh, the Islamic uh, or, or Arabic population of North Africa gaining more political rights. So the so that's the way colonialism and empire features in the book. The thing I wish I could do again is to look at the way the experience of colonialism was brought back to France by uh, these the people in fascist movements or, or people who led extreme right-wing movements. Um, and again, it's uh, historians like Caroline Campbell who've been looking at this sort of thing uh, in terms of the way uh, men who had fought in North Africa, uh, like Larocque, um, brought back with them the ideas about how to best combat enemy populations uh, in North Africa, brought back that uh, those ideas with them to France and to Paris, and used them against the left. Mm. Um, uh, and one figure I would like to look at is Jean uh, Jean Renault, who was the leader of the Solidarité Française mm. in the 1930s. He uh, was an army officer in Indochina, um, and then returned to France to lead this movement. And his was one of the uh, only movements who employed North African street fighters uh, in their own formations um, because of racist attitudes that North Africans were perhaps better suited to combat uh, in in the streets against the left. But I, I would really like to look at how these ideas and these experiences in the colonies were then translated back into political combat in the metropolitan region itself. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, you can. <laughs> Maybe that can be another, <laughs> another, another book. article. <laughs> another, <laughs> no. Oh, article. Sorry, I didn't mean to put pressure on you. Um, so, Chris, I mean, there's so much more we could talk about in all of these um, chapters. Which you know, I was saying to you before we started the, the interview proper that, in some ways, the book is uh, you know incredibly readable and clear, and and it doesn't feel that long. But you've managed to pack in. Um, you know, a lot of sort of synthesis 
of historiography and, uh, and, and of the history in this period, including some of this detail of these different movements and figures, leaders, and also uh, members. The, I want to zoom in, though, on the, the way that you deal in the book with the Vichy period and then the, the post-1944, 45 period bringing us right up to the 21st century. I think the, the way that the book moves from the interwar years through the war and then brings us right up to, well, very close to the present, it's one of the reasons why I would want to assign it to students, you know, to give them a kind of picture of the legacies of the period that more of the book focuses on. And I just wonder, yeah, about that decision to go all, we talked about the decision to start um, in the in the interwar years, but what about that decision to kind of bring us all the way up to the contemporary moment and 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 what that was about for you, having the book continue through uh, the FN now RN RN? Did I get it right? <laughs> yes, I think so. I was also saying I get so confused as political parties change their names every five minutes in the French context. Yeah. So what what made you want to to push the book in in that direction chronologically after the Second World War and the period of Vichy. Yeah, well, I think uh, I included Vichy because it kind of had it had to be in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, also, I'd, I'd in the introduction, I, I think I'd criticised Raymond for only devoting four pages to Vichy <laughs> in his history of the right. So I thought I'm going to give it a bit more attention. Um, I, I wanted to. Uh, go beyond 1945 perhaps to make it more relevant i suppose not not that i don't think the history of interwar fascism is relevant but i wondered if someone who is looking for a book on a history of fascism in france would expect uh post-1945 and it is an interesting question to ask like what happened to fascism or what we call fascism after the the second world war um so i think that chapter I probably intended it as more of an epilogue, I suppose, mm. um, because, uh, a- again, if we're thinking about definitions of fascism uh, and uses of the label, the label after 1945 can only be used in a way that is inherently linked to the experience of the Second World War mm-hmm. and not the interwar years. So I, I doubt many people were going around accusing uh, their enemies of being... Uh, followers of La Roque in 1950. They were probably saying they were Peytonist. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I, I wanted to bring it further up to the present uh, to look at the way uh, the right responded to the legacy of Vichy um, and how it, it re, or, or the extreme right, and how it reinvented itself or had to reinvent itself and the ways it did this through a focus on, uh, in the 1970s, matters like I- immigration. Um, and I also wanted to use that to draw parallels with the interwar years as well, to show that while the the FN or the RN, uh, we might consider them to be very different to interwar fascism, um, and we might call them neo-fascism or, or, or some other term, there are elements of continuity that run right back to the 1920s and the 1930s in the way that the extreme right today operates and the, the messages that it thinks are popular. However, the contexts are so different, um, mm-hmm. and probably the experience of the de- decolonization and the Algerian conflict are much more pertinent and salient today for the extreme right and uh, and uh, its appeal than, than Vichy and, and the interwar years. Um, but I felt it necessary to look at this um, pope, I was going to say post-fascist <laughs> era, uh, whether it is post-fascist or not, I don't know. But um, I, I wanted to bring it up to the present day to make mm-hmm. the book relevant, to to speak to what a, a prospective audience might be looking for in the book, but also because uh, I wanted to show what the legacies of these uh, movements of the 30s and v- the Vichy years were, and, and to pick out elements of continuity that run throughout the whole period and run throughout these movements. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you, because I I just had this thought as you were speaking earlier about the immunity thesis types who characterize the interwar movements as the precursors of 
the Fifth Republic. And it just made me think that in the post-45 period, what emerges, and I, I guess I'm thinking of it most obviously during the period around 68 and in 68, the characterizations of de Gaulle, yeah. <laughs> you know, as an SS leader, as I mean, it's, it's all wrapped up in, you know, the haunting and legacies and memory of Vichy, but um, yeah. in the Second World War, but it is sort of interesting how if, if we're following that logic of who gets called a fascist, who gets characterized as a fascist. And I'm just thinking of people like Dagmar Herzog, you know, and that work that says sure. like, what happens to the label fascism? What happens to the accusation? How does it get used in particular by, well, the new left, um, you know, into the 1960s. So, yeah, I just wondered, do you have any thoughts on that? This is maybe just a selfish kind of, I'm just interested in, and how I would never have made a connection between the twenties and the thirties myself, but that, but those, those people in the sixties, they're making a connection between De Gaulle and Hitler. They're not making a connection between De Gaulle and yes, I don't yeah. know, one of your dudes. <laughs> I think, uh, I think that there is an effort amongst these historians who defend this immunity thesis to uh, defend the fifth Republic. I, I think uh, in, in the way that they, look back to the the 30s and see these long historical roots uh, and to a period in which these clear-sighted men knew exactly what was right for France and what was right for France was the Fifth Republic. Uh, So I think there's maybe an effort to to minimise fascism uh, in the interwar years, uh, to validate the Fifth Republic, perhaps validate de Gaulle, uh, uh, to disconnect him from any uh, association with fascism or, or the extreme right uh, or the right. Um, and René Raymond is maybe the best example of this because, as they say in the right in the appendix, he, he wrote his book in the mid-1950s, not really as a historical text, but as a, an effort to detoxify the right-wing brand after the Vichy years. So his book is actually uh, a political statement as much as a as a history book um because he wants to dissociate conservatism and vichy from fascism and think men like hitler and things like the holocaust um and if you actually look at raymond's text um to do with the quadifer and the 1930s which, which i often do with students i always say to my students where are the footnotes uh, where's the where's the research here? Um, there doesn't seem to be much uh, research in, having gone into it, um, which sort of strengthens the argument that is this more of a political essay? Uh, and what is the purpose of this political essay? Is it to shore up the right at, at a time of uh, a, a nascent Cold War developing across the world and, and where anti-communism is growing? And there's this need to disconnect the right from Vichy. Well, Chris, you know, looking forward to 2022, I mean, there's so many things to to look ahead to. But in the French context, what would you want someone, a student or someone else, thinking about this upcoming election and trying to position and understand the popularity of the RN as a legacy in some ways of some of these movements? Um, as we head into 2022. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, I think I'd want students to take away from uh, the book with regard to the RN that the uh, these movements do operate in very specific political contexts. So the, the interwar movements operate in the context of the aftermath of the First World War, which is absolutely central to what's happening in France and to their appeal. Um, and so perhaps there are uh, fewer lessons to be learned from the past uh, in that respect uh, than uh, for, for the present. However, uh, there are these, as I've mentioned, these continuities, these uh, kind of themes that keep recurring uh, in extreme right-wing and perhaps fascist discourse in France that do seem to have an appeal in France. However, as I also said, there is the, the, the huge post-war experience uh, to, to contend with for the, the background of the the FN and the RN and, and its potential success. 
As for 2022, I imagine I imagine it will probably be Macron and Le Pen in the second round. Probably there will be a depressingly high vote for for the RN without electing Marine Le Pen uh, as president. I hope it goes that way. However, in 2016, I was wrong about two votes. <laughs> uh, I didn't predict Brexit or Donald Trump being elected president, so uh, don't listen to me. <laughs> I think 2016 has made everybody like forever nervous about predicting. Um, yes, yeah. Being too assured about anything. Yes, yeah. that- Chris, I just want to thank you so much for for joining me and for and for writing the book. No, thank you very much. Thank you for the interesting questions. Okay.